ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Yo, yo, yo. Ah! This is Nick's Nonfiction. I'm Nick Muniz. Today on the show, we have got Bear Grylls Never Give Up. Despite a free-falling parachute in Africa, where he broke his back in three places, Bear did not give up. This guy sleeps inside of dead camels. He uses seal skin to make wetsuits. He drinks moose blood. Today, we're talking about one of the youngest mountain climbers ever to reach the summit of Mount Everest. Eating raw snake, jumping from helicopters, drinking water from cow dung. This guy natures. How many bears would Bear Girls grill if Bear Girls could grill bears? Barely enough. What happened when the cannibals ate Bear Girls? They developed a taste for adventure. My boy is special forces. They have the best mottos. Calm is contagious. Improvise, adapt, overcome. I didn't bang that lady boy in Saigon. Special forces. This book was written right after Obama went on his TV show. He had Julia Roberts on his TV show, Roger Federer, Will Ferrell, Channing Tatum. And now Bear has to do their show. He strips with Channing Tatum, returns serves from Roger Federer, hooks with Julia Roberts. Nature kept him grounded, man, amongst all these Hollywood stars. Quote, the truth about reaching the top of any mountain is that the only way forward is down. Why is Bud Light Bear Grylls' favorite beer? Because it tastes like piss! We'll be right back. About the author, Barrington Grillsworth. That's what his real name is. Harry shit on Instagram, patreon.com slash niche. Check it out. Free memes. Top tier bonus content. We've got some failed hikes over on the Patreon from the summer. Quote, trained from a young age in martial arts, Bear Girls went to spend three years as a soldier in the British Special Forces as part of 21 SAS. It was here that he perfected many of his survival skills. He loves to pit himself against Mother Nature. A golfer hits a golf ball off the fairway. It lands in a big field of flowers. He's winding up for a shot and hears a voice behind him say, Please don't hurt my buttercups. The golfer turns around. He sees a woman in a flowing robe. Who are you? He says. I'm Mother Nature. And if you don't hurt my buttercups, I'll give you all of the butter you want for the rest of your life. Golfer thinks about it. He goes, Okay. Well, where were you on the fifth hole when I hit my shot into the pussy willows? (laughs) Unlimited lifetime pussy. We'll be right back. <laughs> Chapter 1, Bear Girls Never Give Up. You're in. Get it? You're in. When in 2012, Mud, Sweat, and Tears was voted the most influential in all of China, I felt that we were done. This is his old book he's talking about. Good job, team. We'll order a few pina coladas, as customary in our crew. A mountain of pizza, always. Then tomorrow we get back to work. Onto new territories, new mountains. They even like bear in China. So, I mean, you could say his career is Disney fied. Nick, this isn't edgy enough. He's been to the edge of the earth, and that'll be chapter five. Remember, sit on the summit too long and you die. A fundamental Everest lesson. And from the top, as I said, the only way is down. Some people might feed off a of success. I don't. I actually struggle with it. It feels indulgent. It makes people slow. I see it often, and I'm always too aware of the reality of the many factors that allow success to happen. Pretty savage. 
And again, people already wrote this guy off because he's made billions from Disney. He's got some good messages. Maybe money makes you slower, always wanting more and more money. That's the only thing you care about then. So yeah, we're talking hippie today. Like, if you have a savings account, that's always a cushion. No one's as hungry as the lone wolf. This is kind of the crux of his fame argument. Anyway, either way, luck or determination, I was always told as a kid to quit when you're ahead and to leave parties five minutes too early rather than too late. That attitude was ingrained in me from a young age. Really, my parents were telling me, don't be greedy, just be grateful. Savage. I don't know, better to leave early than too late. Weakened at Biden's. I'm calling it Michelle Obama, 2024. Yeah, so I was saying Obama was on his TV show. What if he took Biden camping? That's definitely funnier. I'm not sleeping on the ground, Jack. Where are all the kids for us to sniff? When do we get ice cream? Joe Biden camping? You got to pretty be a savage outdoorsman for the president to want to camp with you. Bear Grylls, quote, I have no idea if he was right, but eventually I went along with it anyway. Rob's US TV idea, ultimate survival. He's moving the story forward, what happened between this book and last. So we'll get to his stories, but I'm just trying to say before we get started, Les Stroud did it first. Survivor Man, that's the OG show. If you're asking me who my goat is, I download old Les Stroud episodes. I watch that shit in my tent when I'm camping. The director's cut. He tells you how to survive, bro. So Les was the first guy to take 50 pounds of camera equipment into the woods by himself. Bear Girls has like four cameramen. <laughs> it's definitely a different game. Back to Bear. I could begin with the self-induced enema on the raft that I made myself on the Pacific deserted island. Homie, you're sticking shit up your ass on an island? <laughs> how are you alive? Or that log that snapped under me while crossing a 100-foot ravine in Alaska. Or the pit viper that bit me in Boreno jungle. Or the catfish noodling in the alligator-invested swamps of Alabama. Or maybe one of the close encounters with saltwater crocs in the Australian Northern Territory. Or being buried in an avalanche or caught in a rockfall. Perhaps the improvised wetsuit I made from rotting seal carcasses. Or the urine-drinking, feces-munching, porcupine-hunting, tarantula-chewing, river-rapid-running, mountain-climbing, free-falling... Water landing moment. Sing me now, sing for Homie's done everything. <laughs> I've been asked more times than is imaginable, do I really drink my own urine? Urine. I don't know what it's with with folks, disbelieve mostly, and an insatiable appetite to know what urine tastes like. Well, the answer is yes, I have, and yes, it is terrible. But no, definitely no, I don't drink urine for fun or for health. Some people, though. Although there are some people out there who seem to swear by it, I'm not one of them, but I have drunk it a bunch of times in the name of survival. And the answer to the question, what is it like? It stinks. So one time I was in my tent, like 2 a.m., I wake up to pee, I peed in the wrong bottle, get up at 3 a.m., swig, and I drunk my own piss. I drank my own piss. (laughs) It was like hot apple cider. You remember the heat stays with you because you're not expecting tea. And that shit stinks, dude. I had like camel pee. It was syrup because I was out there dehydrated. Did you know? 
Camels can drink 200 liters of water in five minutes. Been watching a lot of animal documentaries. Camels. So yeah, Bear drinks his piss. Warm, salty urine is not designed to taste good, especially if it's been stored in the skin of a rattlesnake while crossing a desert. Mixed with blood and snake innards, that urine took on a taste of its own that I'm not keen to repeat in a hurry. Then again, survival rarely tastes good and almost always hurts. Stinks, leaves you in a little beaten up. That's the reality of the wild for you and most certainly the reality of survival. It can make you suffer, but there's part of me that loves that. Have you heard about this? Have you seen this urine therapy? I just made a joke about it. Maybe the fountain of youth is the golden fountain. I looked it up. People say lessened arthritis, cleared allergies, no migraines, indigestion cures. (laughs) I've only ever done it in my tent. Look into it. Life can be sanitized nowadays. We shy away from the struggles and reject the broken, the fallen, the unconventional, and the not fit for purpose. For the survivor, for humankind over millennia, those things mean opportunity. Good survival means thinking left field, digging deep, doing the unimaginable. And yes, it might hurt, probably will stink, but in terms of staying alive, the reward always gets to be the person can dig the deepest. You find new levels of yourself, even the first time you go camping. So anyway, yes, urine tastes bad, but it could save your life if you aren't well hydrated. Don't waste clear pee is the principle, because in a survival situation, staying hydrated is right up there in terms of your priorities. P, priority number one. Only the real Bushmen drink their own urine. I always remember when our eldest son Jesse was about eight. I was doing a workout outside, smashing some burpees, press-ups, clock-taking, high-intensity, water bottles beside me, working at my max. It's always been that way. I like my workouts. Fast body weight circuits that build strength, flexibility. Functional fitness helps me do my job. Anyway, Jesse walked past and asked him between burpees to do me a favor. Quickly refill my water bottle. He picked up my empty bottle, scurried aside, returned with the bottle with a smile. I finished up my set, hands up, sucking in air. Thanks, champ, I mumbled as I took the water bottle. I unscrewed the cap, drank deeply. So good. So salty. I spat it out violently. Instead of water, I had taken a mouthful of Jesse's warm pee. What? Why? No! Jesse said, but you love drinking pee, Papa. (laughs) (laughs) What would you do, ground your son for eternity? So yeah, it's not a habit. He's going to drink pee when I have to. It would be tempting to say those camel intestines or frozen Siberian yak eyeball full of blood, fluid, and gristle. Then again, the New Zealand giant wetted insect was off the scale. Or maybe it would be live scorpions, which are always terrible. Full of some weird yellow goo. Elephant dung buried scraped from bear feces. Skunk anus and rat brain were low points. But they all pair in comparison to raw, swollen goat testicles. Oof. Chapter 2. Siberia. Tonight on the menu, we have swollen goat testicles. If you had to pick one place on our planet that is brutally unforgiving in its harsh, cold, desolate conditions, then Siberia in December would definitely be your top three. Probably top two. It's a long way away from anywhere, difficult to get to, and as a survivor, an equally hard place to get out of. It took me to the edge. The edge? That's a kick-ass nature movie. 
the guy who does Silence of the Lambs and the guy who shot someone on set, they go kill a bear together. Four flights in planes of ever-decreasing size and ever-decreasing reliability, and we find ourselves in tiny log cabins each the size of one-and-a-half table tennis stops. With a single bed and a small iron stove for warmth in the middle of the taiga forest, we're in the deepest of Siberia. Another good recommendation. It's about the taiga, Werner Verzog, happy people. He goes and lives with fur trappers. And get this, these people in bear-infested lands, they have a 0% depression rate. How is that possible? Depression, you see, is a chemical imbalance in the brain. What chemical? What imbalance? It's a chemical imbalance. You need to take my SSRIs. Depression is environmental. How could there be 0%? These people that live in nature, go watch that doc. I remember one freezing Siberian night, cameraman Simon Rayo and I were curled up in our sleeping bags on thin roll mats, laid on the deep snow under a tree. Neither of us were sleeping, and every hour or so we would prod into the temperature dial on his camera bag. I know it's cold, Simon. I've got snot frozen to my nose, and it hurts to breathe. His face would be smashed through a small gap in his bag, exposing just the tip of his nose and grinning lips. <laughs> Minus 42. That's epic. <laughs> it's impossible to be sad for some reason even when you're shivering on the ground <laughs> it's like funny <laughs> move fast don't hang around it was the dna of our time especially in the extremes of temperatures it was when the whole notion of no second takes pure necessity get it or don't we're not doing that again moving on i like his technique a finishing trawler knocked me off my feet as I balanced on a small iceberg, hopping to grab onto it. A thin rope ladder climb lowered me to the ship's side. I only just caught the rope and avoided being crushed and sliced into between trawler and berg. Bear Girls was almost crushed between a boat and an iceberg. Trolling. And there was the high gorge crossing when that log gave way beneath me and I just managed to catch another branch with one hand, or the rockfall that sent a boulder the size of a car flying between me and Dan Ethbridge, our cameraman, and me at a hundred miles an hour only missing us by feet. Some better advice. The lesson was don't play the odds for too long. Remember, quit when you're ahead. And what you can plan, plan well. Do once, don't screw it up. Or else... It's the or else part that Mother Nature can be very unforgiving, and when things go wrong, they tend to go wrong fast. It's like people complain about getting lost. If you don't spend 30 minutes looking at a map before you deserve to get lost. Whatever. Preparation. You know, opportunities. What happens with preparation means hard work. Another one. Never, never bound down as a sheep to a wolf. Another one. <laughs> quote the siberian river crossing went well we didn't die we all delivered on our jobs simon was caught in the action dave kept simon safe the microphone worked despite the water so on the royal navy said the team worked but we had never had much time to take stock and say well done to each other the pace was always so fast 12 days in a country two episodes to nail keep it moving damn so he's not really enjoying the nature, but I'm thinking even doper. He's got a team of seals out there. <laughs> their weapons are their cameras. 
Once out of the river, it was on to digging a snow cave, making snares, climbing cliffs, sledging down huge thousand-foot snow faces on an animal carcass, and drinking flesh blood from a yak's neck, then chasing down the Trans-Siberian Express train and skydiving from an old Russian M-17. We would never have got permission for a jump in weather conditions like that in the UK, but in Siberia? Here's my third final recommendation bombshell for the chapter. The Siberian Great Wall. China's got a great wall, now Montana's got a great wall. Russian dudes are finding this giant wall out in Siberia. Final quote. By dawn, when we emerged into the cold mountain air and we went down the slope to check on Slav and to wait for the crew, we were a little anxious about what the state he would be in. Slav was their Russian guide. And we would see that his fire had long gone out. In fact, I was genuinely concerned if he would even be alive. As we rounded his tent, I wondered why we had even worried. There was Slav, grinning at us, dressed exactly as we had left him, big thick gray overcoat with hands like spades pushed through the sleeves, chewing on a piece of impaled pig fat on the end of his knife. Dave and I looked at each other and laughed. It would take more than a minus 45 degree night to finish off Slav the pig impaler. Dave exclaimed, wow, they make them tough in Siberia. Chapter 3. Dirtiest. Dirty jobs. He's gonna go micro on us. He stops to talk about the grimiest place black swamps of Sumatra. They're known for their coffee beans. They should be known for their mosquitoes. If I was to name the dirtiest, grimiest place we ever shot, I would probably call out Sumatra. Although, to be honest, in the category there are some strong contenders, we were all bushed after 12 hours of operating in 100% humidity and crazily high temperatures. The mosquitoes had been getting bad, but our local support team and our aboriginal guys weren't complaining, so we muscled on. We set up camp and stripped down to our underpants to wash in a dirty creek, trying to cool off as much as get clean. Then suddenly, in a matter of minutes, it was like every mosquito that was buzzing around our heads multiplied a hundredfold. One moment we were chatting away as we sorted our gear, the next the noise of moseys buzzing around was so loud we had to shout to hear. The air literally became thick with clouds of bugs. It was an immense sight. By morning, our bodies looked like we'd been rolling across drawing pins. We were swollen, bleeding, scratching messes. And that was with a tent to crawl into. Strip away the tech, the tools, the resources, and pretty much we're in a similar boat to our ancestors thousands of years ago. Yes, we can put some dung in the fire, get smoked out. Yes, we could rub mud on our skins. But ultimately in the wild, we are never the strongest, toughest, or most resilient. That prize goes to the animals. Hardened, honed, and refined in their ability to endure, adapt, and survive. Animals are always in a constant fight to stay alive. As a result, they're pretty damn good at it. Yes. If we want to take note, you gotta look at the animals. How do they fucking do it? <laughs> but this blows my mind about evolution. Humans are becoming worse at survival. No, no, we build bunkers and shit, but literally a human cannot survive outside without clothes. Another grim environment, Bear was talking about the Everglades. He almost got bit by a water moccasin in Louisiana. We know that's what almost killed Teddy Roosevelt. Everglades, also full of mosquitoes. Quote, the approach was all good. Dave guided the pilot to the remote swamp location when we bought a chopper to hover 50 feet overhead. Blah, blah, blah. 
The rope went out and I peered down the swamp, looked horrific. Reeds, mud, and water were being blown everywhere. I could just glimpse the heads of the crews among the debris and I could smell this stinking swamp. Even from 50 feet away, I knew that the humidity down there would be horrendous. If the place smells like shit, you probably shouldn't be there. Marshes, swamps. But there we go. If this job was either safe or sanitary, then a million other people would be doing it. I eased myself over the doorframe and grabbed the thick rope. He's rappelling from a helicopter into the Everglades. <laughs> Concentrate. Time to switch into hyper-alert and hyper-calm mode. It's a place I know well. By three quarters of the way down, I was really flying. So fast I knew if I had to stop, I wouldn't be able to using only my hands. But that was fine. The soft sinking swamp was waiting below. At that point, somehow the rope just caught my shirt and ripped some of my buttons off, followed instantly by an intense burning pain as the rope brushed against my bare chest at high speed. I knew at once that would hurt, but before I could think beyond that, I splashed into the swamp like a proverbial sack of potatoes. Once I'd wriggled myself to a small tussock of mud and lifted myself out of the gloop for a second, I looked down to see a tennis ball-sized mark of raw pink flesh just above my nipple. It didn't look pretty. Then it started to bleed. Hard. The words of the ranger team started ringing in my ear. With any cuts or grazes, don't go into that hellhole of a stinking swamp. And so began yet another classic Man vs. Wild adventure. So the mission starts with a hole in his chest the size of a tennis ball in croc-infested waters. Moments after landing in that swamp, I remember catching a glimpse of huge monitor lizards in muddy water beside me. I managed to grab it by the tail and swung it violently against a tree. <laughs> it was as much in self-defense as an effective method of swiftly dispatching it. The reptile was four feet in length, and we all ate it that evening sitting around a campfire. Fans of Man vs. Wild will often mention the monitor lizard moment. I guess it's something about reptiles in murky water. I then watched as Steve began to edge forward, carefully moving his tobacco and rollies from his thigh pocket to his trouser pocket. Then as it got even deeper, from his trouser pocket to his chest pocket, then from his chest pocket to the top of his cowboy hat, and then eventually to his hand raised far above his head. Meanwhile, his radio would be dead, his phone knackered, his notebook gone, but at least his tobacco was safe. I love it. That's another great image I always carry with me. Up to his neck is crap, yet always smiling, and his arms outstretched above him holding his backy. Priorities? <laughs> Every day in truth was stacked full of little moments like this. As I look back, it's the little things that stand out strongest in my memories. People's quirky habits, worried looks, moments of quiet struggle, and then times of outright laughter. I also remember one particularly close call in the Jungle River a few days later, once we had transitioned out of the swamp to higher ground. The river was in full flood and we were down to a small skeleton crew for some reason I can't recall. Flooding jungle rivers are notoriously dangerous as they are always swollen with dirty brown water. This hides so many dangers. At a time when the rivers are brimming with deadwood and tree trunks, these in turn act like submerged hidden strainers. As they are known, when logs get jammed at the power of a water, they pin objects against them. Getting trapped against one of these is game over. Mr. It's not a video game bear. Nowadays, I'm so cautious about how we operate. I should have died many times in those early adventures. And when you get low on lives, you have to get smarter, wiser, and more risk averse. Or one day, you simply won't come home. Chapter 4, Improvise, Adapt, Overcome. He's going like TMZ this chapter about Hollywood. When Running Wild started, we would go through so many great moments and adventures with the stars. I found out strange how much they, uh... 
I found it strange how much they would move in terms of their relationships, not just with me, but with the crew. It felt a bit fickle. Damn. So he was doing like Hollywood is summer camp. Yeah, for pedophile narcissists. Roman Polanski, Harvey Weinstein in The Kitty Touchers. This part I found interesting. Army Hammer went on the show. And we know a little bit more about him in hindsight. Army had arrived with a high level of scuba experience, having done a bunch of deep and committed dives in various locations around the world. He wasn't just a regular scuba dude. He was well-trained and experienced. It was why I felt comfortable pushing the boundaries a little in terms of our planned infiltration among the rugged coast of Sardinia. So, I'm just gonna ask, like, would you go caving with someone who's known to dine on human flesh? And don't be a closed-minded bigot. Okay, it's it's cool to eat celebrity meat now. That's what the news tells us. So, if you're not going to go to a stranded island with a cannibal, that's against you. The intention was to drop from the side of an RIB at a point we had scouted at the base of some committing of high sea levels. We had been told by local divers about a sea cave at the base of a cliff with a small venting blowhole that could be accessed from a deep rock face. That blowhole would lead up to a small ledge some 50 foot up the cliff. All possible, but I knew it would require some technical suba skills. Army, the crew, and I would be operating narrow dark tunnels subsurface that would have to risk sinking and cached gear before attaching a lower ladder. Death. As it happened, the conditions on the day were rough, with strong mistral wind blows, making the waves and white water at the base of the cliffs horrendous. The local dive crew deemed it too dangerous, but with a slimmed-down crew, we decided as a team we would have a look. Two of our crew had regular issues with their gear, exacerbated by the sea state, had to retreat to the RIB, but Army Dan and our camera operator and I managed to get into the tunnel by the skin of our teeth, with me leading with the torch." It was many people, including Sarah's worst idea of a nightmare situation. Dark, confined underwater spaces with limited air, huge wave pressure sucking you back and forth, dragging you against sharp rocks and tunnel roofs above. As a team, by the time Army and I had got through the tunnel, we didn't give the danger behind us much of a passing thought. There are moments of great intensity and risk that require optimum focus, but as a team, we tend to simply do our jobs and deliver, then move on. Within minutes, we can go from high alert, stop bragging. Around this time, I was getting more and more of an urge to do something that was rooted in and he made it out of the cave. Are you going in a cave with a cannibal? Next up, Bear meant we meet up with this guy, Gilo. Together, we eventually broke the world altitude paramotor record. On our way towards the highest peak on Earth, the machine died and began rapidly descending before he managed to get above Everest. For a few minutes, we were a speck. Thousands of... Shut up. Bro, paramotors are the future. Those dudes have bigger balls than cave divers. Paramotors? There's this kid on YouTube. He flies his paramotor to, like, Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> they have him in North Boulder. Some dudes are paramotoring around. The fucking DARPA is making, like, jetpacks, and they cost $10,000. You could look it up. You're only allowed to buy it if you have a private army. But I'm saying paramotors, we could all just be flying around, bruh. This shit is sick. 
Suddenly, I found myself on my own up there, pretty scared. But there's something about just being in a situation, having to deal with it, that focuses the mind. And as we all know, panic rarely improves anything. So I tried to keep calm. I kept ascending at full power, hoping for a miracle. Gilo's amazing machine, which was truly a remarkable feat of engineering. Kids in Iowa do it. I am in no doubt that Gilo's hard work and genius allowed me to soar over 29,000 feet. Holy shit! You could go into the stratosphere with these things. <laughs> Looking down and across Mount Everest was a special moment, not least for the fact that for the first time in weeks, there was no director asking me endless questions. Up there, I was very alone. Homie flew a paramotor over Mount Everest. Chapter 5. Top Secret. Bear, sailing out over the Northwest Passage for our final chapter. This is a shipping route up and around Canada. It goes towards China. Our mother vessel found herself approaching thick ice. It would either need to wait for the weather to change or the ice passage to ease. China. Like the captain wanted to wait and see if the weather would break up the ice further over the next few days. What about if we take the RIB and try to find another more ice-free route? I suggested maybe we head 200 miles southwest through all the area and meet you at Cambridge Bay. I've read enough boat books now, you don't split up the team. Once you deviated off the main charted route though, the Garmin plotter came up with the wording, No data available. I knew instantly we would be going that way. Bears got that sense of adventure. As soon as the GPS <laughs> is uh, turning off, that's where he's like, let's go further. We picked the biggest islands we could spot with the biggest natural anchorage, bearing in mind none of the islands rose more than 20 feet above sea level. By the time we got the tents up and the stoves on to melt ice, it was getting dark as it does in the summer months. It doesn't get dark up there. Ben Jones, our Welsh engineer who had never left the UK before and for whom we'd had to sort a passport before the trip, wandered off for a smoke. Holy crap, what is this? Holy crap! He shouted, looking at a human skull he had accidentally kicked. We soon discovered that the little island was a Trevor Troge of rough and western-looking graves. Human bones and skulls, rifle cartridges, one particularly length of wood half-submerged in the shingle that resembled an old-style spar or mast. Yarg, we've got some booty! Old Shipwreck. Two things were certain. One was that no western boat would have passed through this part of the Victoria Strait since the mid-19th century as there were west of the conventional Northwest Passage Navigable route. Secondly, this whole scene didn't look Inuit at all. Who would have been burying bodies and burning huge fires anyway? He's convinced it's a ship from the 1800s. So, he said in this chapter called Top Secret, the furthest north you're allowed to go is the Beaufort Sea. So I start looking on it, Google Maps. This is due north of Alaska. By the time we swung into the shelter of Pierce Point, we were done. The battering of the sea and the long hours had taken their toll, but the team had done amazing work. The other final cool thing we discovered up in the Arctic tucked away down the end of a very remote inlet in shallow hidden territory accessible only by small craft was a clearly functioning military base. So maybe humans are better at survival than animals. You got nuclear bases on the North Pole. 
The place consisted of a cluster of ice and weatherproof buildings, marked pathways, monitoring equipment, aerial radar, antennae, and carefully arranged and connected buildings. The bunkers were made of corrugated shiny metal, all dome-shaped and sunk into the permafrost. We had a good look around and then got the fear that we were being watched, so we didn't hang around. The many CCTV cameras keep out. This station is monitored. 24-7 signs did the job. I know there's a base in, like, Iceland where they have every single seed to repopulate. No doubt the U.S. and Canadian military keep many covert places like this in remote parts of the Arctic and beyond. My favorite meme, I think I've used it on the Patreon. It's the kid after you go on a roller coaster ride. He's trying to block you from taking pictures of the screenshot. And the caption is, Google Earth trying to block out the North Pole. Anywho... The U.S.'s northmost military installation. You can look this up. Thule Air Base. <laughs> Thule. <laughs> so from the start, you're being made fun of by the Thule Society. But, uh, yeah, just fucking be a curious person like Bear Grylls. Life is strange like that. Too fast sometimes. But it had been a great trip and the perfect antidote to the constant cameras and the pressure of having always to be on. But now more than ever, I wanted to be part of helping other people to find their own adventure. Whether that is finding a running wild guest or a young girl scout in Sudan, it is about empowering people with the tools and skills as well as their inspiration and value that they most need to thrive. Improvise. Adapt. Overcome. There you have it. Bear Grylls. Never give up. Survival, adventuring, a very Nick's nonfiction edition. Next week, next week, mystery edition on deck. Check out Harry Shit for some nightly free memes. Patreon.com slash niche. Thank you guys for who are still here for the journey. Let's get a random soundboard effect to end it. Nick Munez signing off. Peace.